Hello, and welcome to the first official podcast of The Analysts, a production of KCTS 9, Vote 2016. I'm Joni Balter, KCTS 9 political analyst here today with C.R. Douglas, political analyst for Q13. We are hereby crowned The Analysts. <laughs> it's we a good are, name. It's, a good, it's name. a good name. We are having so much fun. We are going to make a regular thing of this weekly through the election and continuing thereafter. So thanks for joining us. So let's start with the presidential debate. Hey, CR, what did you make of that? Well, I thought it saved Trump's candidacy. I mean, he gave a much better performance than he did the first debate. You know, there were lots of calls for him to resign, get off the ticket after that video surfaced. And... He ended that talk. He was much more disciplined than he was in the first debate. Um, He didn't take her bait, kept the focus on her. So in that respect, it it saved him, but it came at a cost. He was more aggressive. Um, He had to play to his base, and he didn't really reach out to moderates. And that's pretty tough. I mean, it's hard to do both play to your base and reach out. And typically this late in the campaign, you've already played your base. You've got them wrapped up and it's in reach out mode. He just doesn't have that luxury based on kind of where his campaign's at. To me, it wasn't so much a debate as it was a really weird TV freak show. It was very, very hard to watch. Uh, Going into this, you know, I always think the the town hall format is pretty much a body language uh, program. You're trying to just read that. And you would expect Donald Trump, you know, his his career, part of it anyway, has been in TV. So you would expect him to be just beautifully reaching out and connecting with the audience. But especially at the beginning, he looked really tired and angry. You know, after all, he was, let's remember, he was pulling off this stunt by bringing in Bill Clinton's ex-girlfriends and putting them just near enough to Hillary Clinton to rattle her. And so, you know, he looked angry. She looked a little angry there at the very beginning until they both loosened up and and got into it. The other body language thing I just could not get over was the the lurking and the hulking, the positioning of Trump sort of looming over Hillary Clinton while she was trying to talk to people in the audience. Uh, It reminded me of – it was sort of like he was – A, physically trying to intimidate her, and B, it kind of reminded me that feeling you get like when you go on a rainy night to your cash machine and there's someone there trying to sort of hover and maybe they're going to grab either the money or the debit card. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think he was well prepped on kind of the message stuff. I don't think he was really well prepped on the choreography. I mean, I think that that didn't work well for him. The other thing that was kind of the big big problem, if you will, was his – his response to the video. I mean, a lot of Republicans, a lot of women were waiting, especially at that outset, for a more remorseful, a more contrite Donald Trump. Uh, And they didn't get it. Instead, his explanation was, hey, it was just locker room talk. Everyone does it. It was only words, not actions. And by the way, Bill Clinton's worse. And I think that was that was pretty unsatisfying and 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 continues that video and his response non-response continues to get him into problems. And now here in the days after the debate, you're hearing from folks who are in locker rooms and saying, "Uh uh-oh, he's giving a bad name to locker rooms, (laughs) right? I'm interested in what you think of state party chair Susan Hutchison, GOP lead here. Uh, She came out with this tweet 
a response after the video broke saying, hey, uh, the problem here is is that this all happened when he was a Democrat. And that's the that's the reason. Uh, you know, that thing went nationwide. It was cringeworthy. People were mocking it. It was in the top 10 statements of sort of silly things that people said. So I thought it was kind of embarrassing. I mean, it was hard to follow exactly the way it was it was worded. So she says, Trump was merely channeling Bill Clinton. And by the way, you know, he Trump, he Trump said that back when he was a Democrat. Yeah, huh? somehow it's 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 <laughs> the problem here is Democrats and that people do this when they're Democrats. And then when they see the light, they become Republicans and they're and they're much better. I mean, it got her in a lot of hot water. There were calls for her resignation. I don't think anything's going to happen to her before the election. And in fact, I think she will be judged ultimately by how well Republicans do in this state in November, especially the state Senate. That's the one branch of government, if you will, that the, that the Republicans control. And that's been an important source of power for them. They've been able to stop a lot of the, of the Inslee and Democratic agenda. If they lose control of the state Senate, I see it's going to be tough for her to continue. It's going to be tough for her to continue also, depending on uh, how the candidates do, you know, the Senate candidate, Chris Vance, and he's not expected to do very well. And the gubernatorial candidate, Bill Bryant, segue for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And let's talk about that governor's race. You know, it's the biggest thing, of course, on our statewide ballot. I'm actually going to be co-moderating their final debate next week in Pasco with Enrique Cerna from here at KCTS. It's still an uphill battle for Bryant, who's been struggling uh, in the polls. You know, we talked about last time, how hard it is for a Republican in the state of Washington, because we're one of the few states that elects our governor on the presidential cycle, which means that's a higher turnout, tougher for Democrats. Um, but I have another theory. I'd be interested in your response here, which is that one of the reasons Republicans have had such a tough time getting this office, it's been 36 years since they won an election for the governor, is the success of Tim Eyman. And here's what I mean. He has been so good at reducing taxes, I mean, the car cab tax, property taxes, that he's kind of taken the best issue away from Republicans. If you look at Republicans that have won in some blue states, it's almost always on a tax relief message. It's not about social issues. And Republicans don't really have that now in Washington. There's not a sort of pitchfork message they can give about reducing taxes. In fact, they don't even call for reducing taxes. They just call for no new taxes. Hold the line. Well, that's not the same great message that they could have. If Iman had not been so successful, I think it's much more likely that a Republican candidate for governor in Washington would have been able to ride to victory over an anti-tax relief platform. I, th I think that's a great point, and that really is part of it. But I think you cannot gloss over the the other point that we're we're touching on here, and that is the structural situation here in Washington where by governors have to run in the same cycle, same year as presidential in our state, which is as democratic as an electorate can get. Um, but lately, you know, and here's another interesting point about our governor's race. Uh, because there's so many new people here, this, this subject comes up again and again and again. Uh, why don't we have an income tax in the state of Washington? Well, very clear answer. We have a very high sales tax. And so nobody or very few people or maybe only 40 percent by the last vote believe that you would come along 
create an income tax, lower the sales tax. What they really believe is you would do all that and then you would lower the sales tax for about two minutes until you had something else you wanted to do here, at which point the sales tax would go up, then you'd have an income tax, and so it would be plus. And so that seems to be uh, something that people don't want to vote for. Yeah, and, we vote and, three and, to two and, against it. Right. Brian, the Republican challenger, is kind of doing what a lot of Republicans have in the past, which is sort of scare people that, that, that the Democrat incumbent will want to will wanna finally implement a, an income tax. It's interesting to me. I think Bryant's clearly shifted his strategy. You know, for the last year, he's been kind of making a, uh, a kind of management critique of Inslee as his message. You know, there are problems at DOT, problems at the Department of Corrections, problems at Western State. And that if you had someone who was more competent, we'd have a better state. Well, that's not a real rallying cry message. Well, it doesn't seem to be working either. There's and it that hasn't little been working. matter. He's, he's sort of frozen, you know, in the polls. So. He's clearly not getting traction for that. And I just don't think, I just don't think it resonates uh, with voters. So he's really pivoting in just the last couple of weeks. I mean, he has a new ad up about traffic where he's in traffic and say, I get it. I'm going to change this. That's a much more issues-based, relatable message. He also recently is talking about homelessness more. You know, look at all this problem, especially in Seattle. It's gotten out of hand. I'll fix it. Those are issues. It's not about this kind of abstract concept of, of, of management. I think he's probably late getting to issues. I think it's going to be tough for him to make up a lot of ground. But I do think it's a better tact than what he's been doing up to now. Yeah, I thought the story on the cover of the local section of the Seattle Times, whereby Bill Bryant was attacking the Seattle City Council for their plan to allow homeless encampments throughout the city, you know, on on public streets, the sidewalks, on the uh, in the parks. I thought that was kind of interesting. On the traffic ad, I swear um I had a I was thinking back to the Greg Nichols mayoral race if you can imagine. I think it was in 19 19- 97 and there was one of those traffic ads where it looks like you're in the movie taxi and they're you know close up of all the of all the cars and the candidates in the car and going i could fix this Uh, i think those work uh i remember that ad i remember at the time uh that it it just didn't have a lot of money behind it to drive it and so uh greg nichols um didn't become mayor that time but and I think maybe that's the same problem that Bill Bryant has this time around. He doesn't have a lot of money compared to Jay Inslee to drive that ad. He's he's getting way outspent. And you know, while I think he's sort of on the right issues, you know, there's still the question about well, does he have a plan to solve it? It doesn't mean just because he's kind of hitting hitting traffic as something that people people can 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 identify with that he's actually got the right solution. But I, I think this is the right tactic for him. But it's very late. It's very late, and sort of uh, the context is a problem for him. Did you see the Como News Strategies 360 poll? It was asking likely voters, which is the right thing to do, how things are going. So general climate of the race in the state of Washington. And I think this is the biggest problem for Bill Bryant. The poll found 56% of these likely voters think the state is headed in the right direction. And that's about the boom, you know, the boom we've got going. Uh, one of the guys involved in the in, in the polling, Ron Dotsauer, he's been a political consultant around here for a long time, said the engine's red hot in Washington state. Uh, they're pretty confident people, voters, are pretty confident about the future. So to me, that economic climate is what what Bill Bryant is also 
running against. It's tough to make yeah, the case I mean, for Bill, change. It, it's tough. And in that same poll, you know, Inslee's ahead by 10 points. Um, listen, when you got that much kind of kind of goodwill, if you will, among voters about the economy, it is tough to fire the incumbent. I mean, the truth is that the economy is doing super great in kind of the Bainbridge, Seattle, Bellevue corridor and not great in other parts of the state. And Bill Bryant's sort of trying to make that point. Um, the recover- yeah, but the voters are all where where the corridor, the voter the rich are regions booming. are in the are in the economic engine. So the recovery is not being equally shared. Um, but as as you say, in in all important King County, it's it's doing very well, and it's going to be tough to make an economic argument that Bill Bryant's trying to. It's it's an economic boom you can actually see. You can see the cranes. You can see the buildings going up. I mean, it's it's visual, and you can you can just see it, feel it, all of that. We were both, and I'd be interested in what you thought of it, at the sound transit debate uh, a couple days ago. You moderated. I was kind of one of the journalists on the panel. Um, it's the biggest thing on the ballot in terms of money, $54 billion. You can this, say that again. $54 billion. <laughs> I sound like Carl shot. Sagan. Uh, what'd you make of kind of the debate and the pro-con there? So it was a pretty pro-light real crowd. You could tell by the clapping and some of the questions that we asked the audience. And I thought King County Executive Dow Constantine made a great case for the package, uh, you know, because he was asked, you know, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do this now? And his thing was, why not now? You were only putting off till tomorrow what you, you know, you should got to do today. But I thought one of the guys in the audience asked a pretty good question, too. And this does go directly to how enormously, ginormously big this thing is. Uh, He asked about self-driving cars. Why spend so much on this light rail structure here uh, when something new, and his example was self-driving cars, could replace light rail, and we might not have to spend so much? Here's my take on that. I mean, I don't actually get that argument, Um, and maybe I'm missing something, but it seems to me the difference between a self-driving car and a, and a normal car is is who's at the wheel. I mean, the computer or you. But it is still a car. It's still taking up space. It's still largely going to be single occupant vehicles. So I don't see how this introduction of self-driving cars, and I think they're coming, is going to somehow magically reduce congestion. I mean, you can make an argument even more people might be using them because they will offer the benefits of transit. I mean, one reason why it's great to ride in a bus is you can read and listen to your podcast. You don't have to sort of pay attention to the roadway. Well, if you can do that in a self-driving car, marathon episodes of Breaking Bad, and you don't have to worry about anything, you know, you may have more of them That'll on the street. That'll be what you're watching. You have been more of them I will on the not street. be watching Breaking Bad for the record here. Well, what about this idea? And I don't have the numbers, but somebody does. How many cars that are filling our streets especially are driving around looking for a parking space because with self-driving cars, that is one thing that is, is taken away. Uh, and that may be it. You know, the, the, the best argument against this thing, it seems to be, and it came up that night, which is it's expensive and the timeline is brutal. You know, it's like 25 or 30 years out. It's going to be two generations before we'll even see the benefits of it. But the problem with the no side um, is that they don't have a great alternative. You know, they talk about bus rapid transit. They talk about HOV lanes. They talk about van pools. I mean, all strategies that, you know, sound good, but there's not kind of a vetted plan. There's no kind of economic model about how you would, you know, add those lanes. And are the buses going to be in current lanes or, or, or new dedicated right away? Um, I mean, I'm not saying that that can't be 
a case can't be made for that, but 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 they don't make it in any detail. And maybe you don't have to. You know, some ways a ballot measure can be can be killed by just attacking it. You don't have to have an alternative. And sort of there is the history of sound transit where the voters a couple of times have said no, knowing and Dow Constantine certainly didn't like this question from me, but knowing that, okay, you you know, we offered you the biggest possible package we could think of, uh, and then we came back with something just a teeny bit smaller, and the voters say yes. So that's a possibility. I was intrigued as well. At one point, I asked the audience, you know, raise your hands. How many of you think um, that sound transit will actually alleviate traffic. I mean, the other choice is, is it avoiding future traffic or will your, will your commute actually be, you know, noticeably better? And I got the sense from the audience that they actually think they're going to, you know, that was a yes vote mm-hmm. crowd, as we said. But I got the sense that they were thinking, yeah, my commute's going to get better. And so that would be a, a reason for their yes vote. I, I think this will probably win. That's my instinct. Um, Mine the, too. The, the Mine difference too. I think between it passes. this and the first, but you know, we had Sound Transit But once. I won't be upset if it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> the, the difference between Sound Transit 1 and Sound Transit 2 and people forget this, is that light rail was not even up and running, even for the second vote. I mean, those were both theoretical votes, if you will. Nothing was on the ground. No one had touched the system. It was all still in planning and building stage. Now, for the last several years, you've had people riding it. I mean, the best argument for sound transit is just trains running every day. I mean, people are on this thing. They see it. They've used it. We just had a 100,000 rider a day. It was a record. There's all kinds of energy about the light rail stations that have opened in Capitol Hill and UW. I mean, the, the energy around the system is is tangible and real, as opposed to the first two votes, which they won, where it was just a theory. And the timing for them has been absolutely gorgeous because they've had about, I don't know if it's two or three of these super high volume days, and they just show people, you know, it's it's so many people crowding to get on sound transit and hitting these record numbers. Within the last few weeks, I they, mean, they have to be yeah, loving yeah. that. These they are to, these are small commercials. They ought to things. thank the Pac-10 for having the Stanford UW game up here because that was the day that people were going to Husky Stadium and light rail, and they and they had and their they first, can thank the they Huskies. They had their first hundred thousand day. They and can thank course, the Huskies for being so amazingly good the, the last won, few but two weeks. Two top ten teams. That was a good thing. That wasn't an away game for Sound Transit. <laughs> good for Sound Transit. Okay, seventh congressional district. Um, I'm hosting a, a seventh congressional district debate. In in two weeks, and I think you're hosting one. Is it this week? I am, week? and yeah, in two days. So these folks are getting a lot of uh, debate exercise, let's say. But you know, and when people ask me about this race, and a lot of people are talking about it, they're always asking, "What is the actual difference between these two candidates?" In other words, would they ever really vote any different? Well. That's a good question and a hard question. I mean, they both um, are playing so nice that they don't even really generate much difference when they're talking to each other and debating each other. Um, One way to kind of separate them is priorities. I mean, I think they'd have pretty similar voting records if they went back there, but they have different priorities, what they would emphasize. Brady Walkinshaw talks about how he would, you know, push climate change legislation or try carbon tax, something like that in his first hundred days. She says, you know, inequality and reducing that would be would be her early priorities. So that kind of separates them a little bit. But, you know, poor Brady Walkinshaw. 
this is not the race he wanted. You know, when he jumped into this, he was taking on Jim McDermott, the longtime incumbent. For him, this was going to be a race that pitted one generation against the next. You know, the young, new, gay, Cuban, son of an immigrant against the guy who's been there forever, kind of past his prime, um, you know, the new progressive and 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 he actually knocked McDermott out. Decided he didn't even want to do this. So then well, in comes some debate on whether or not he actually knew if McDermott was getting out. That is one of the things a lot of people think he had wink wink from Jim McDermott that he would be getting out. So I'm not I'm not sure. Yeah, but that. I'd be surprised if I'd be surprised if Brady was the only one that got the wink wink. I mean, Pramila Jayapal would have jumped in if she knew he was getting out too. So. My my sense is he was still going to run this race, but now he gets a race he didn't expect, which is with Pramila Jayapal, who in a way comes from kind of the same mold, you know, kind of a, kind of an, uh, a newcomer to elected office. She's an immigrant. She's you know, woman of Indian descent. You know, another sort of new progressive, the new face of 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 kind of America, if you will. So it's been much tougher for him than it would have been, I think, against McDermott. Well, one of the reasons I struggle so much to answer this question is when I think about issues in Congress, I have the sense that Pramila Jayapal and Brady Walkinshaw would vote exactly the same on almost every issue. And they're both progressive, very left. And I have the sense that they would vote pretty much the same as someone like uh, Congressman Derek Kilmer, who's a more moderate Republican. I don't think the voting is going to be that that different. I think the real difference between these two is their orientation. In other words, uh, local versus national. So I say Pramila Jayapal, if she is elected, she's going to be on the Rachel Maddow show in about five minutes talking about sort of national policy, you know, on maybe free college, things like that. And from Brady Walkinshaw, the one thing I've picked up is um, sort of more local focus. I mean, he even talked about, and this is a little dry. This is paint drying right here, but but it's important. It's good for you. It's eat your peas. The idea of fixing Interstate 5. I mean, people don't talk about this, but this really matters, you know. So so that's maybe the the biggest the biggest difference. There is one local issue they're different on. And, and you and I talked about this in a, in a pre-session here, carbon tax. So Brady Walkinshaw has come out in favor of Washington State's carbon tax. And Pramila Jayapal said she thinks we can have a better package. We can do better. Yeah. And that's, of course, Initiative 732. Um, he's trying to make, without saying it directly, the very point you've made that that with Pramila, you will get a more national figure that's that's going to use the platform for for more national issues, if you will. And, and I'll be the more local candidate. Um, he's he's trying to say that gently. I've heard her say in response, um, hey, we're not electing a member of the city council here. You know, try, trying to, you know, we're electing a member of Congress. We got big issues here. So she's trying to kind of play that. You know, my sense is that 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 not much has changed since the primary when she won, you know, twice as many votes as he did. I mean, she came out of that very strong, certainly in the strong position. And not much has changed. So so he's the underdog here. And I don't see things changing for him, his his fortunes changing, unless something gets gets shooken up in this race. I think probably he has to go negative. Um, he probably has to bring up some things like, you know, she doesn't live in the district. 
That hasn't been talked about much. She lives ten blocks away, but yeah, we have but, a weird we have a weird thing where you can run for Congress and not actually live in that you don't district. Have to live in your district. Yeah. But in fairness to Pramila Jayapal, she actually did live in the district until it was recently. Uh, it was the, recently redrawn a couple of years ago, and redrawn. she's pledged that if she wins, she'll move into the district. Um, but you know, that's a little bit of a of a you know you can kind of get her a little bit on that. She's missed some votes down in Olympia. Um, I'm not saying this would necessarily work, but I don't see how Brady, uh, he needs a game changer here. And uh, unfortunately, in politics, sort of going negative can be that. Whether he does it or not, I don't know. I, I don't expect him to do that. I think it's you know, emphasis or emphasis, as one of my editors used to say, like who's going to stress most. You do have to realize that the primary voting group is is much different than the November general election. So that's probably the only thing he's got going his way. Right. And that may help him. I mean, she's sort of, you know, she's been a, a Bernie Sanders supporter, a Shama Sawant supporter. So, I mean, she's she's uh, she's on the more progressive end of progressivism, if you will. You know, he was a Clinton supporter. So he has a chance to kind of go out into the, the nether regions of this district. You know, this goes all the way up to Edmonds. You know, Shoreline. I mean, it's not just a Seattle district, and he probably has a chance to, 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 to win more of the outside Seattle vote. Yeah, that's what it seems. And like. there'll be more of that vote, and there'll be more of that, and they're a little yeah. different than they are yeah. in the primary. Finally, guns. There is this initiative on the ballot, fourteen ninety one, and I'd love your thoughts on it. Extreme risk protection ordinance orders. Basically, what this would do it would allow family members or law enforcement, to petition a court and say, hey, my loved one, my father, my son, my uncle, my kid, is so dangerous, you need to take their gun away. And right now, there isn't a procedure for that. There's involuntary commitment, but that's kind of a higher hurdle. And Very difficult yeah. to, to really pull off. And you actually have to be involuntary committed for 14 days before your gun's taken away. And most aren't, even if they are put in an institution for a while. So this, this kind of is, is trying to, you know, be a piece of the puzzle here. Uh, what's your sense of this? Has it got a chance? Oh, it has a heck of a chance. So, you know, just for some background here, that California lawmakers uh, passed this uh, in their legislature in 2014. This Something very, very similar to this after the shootings that happened in Santa Barbara. Uh, I'm thinking this thing passes pretty easily. A couple reasons. First of all, there is no no campaign to speak of. Uh you know, the yes side has all this tech money and Michael Bloomberg money piled up, something like $3.6 million. And the other side, finally this week, they had nothing in there. They finally filed some paperwork, and they literally were showing a balance of zero. Now, I know they'll get a few donations. But, uh, you know, look, Washington has had... I, I still don't know if it's six or seven mass shootings. It kind of doesn't matter which which is the right number. Too many um, voters are primed to vote for something here. Uh, and they're, you know, without a no campaign to kind of confuse folks or talk to them out of this idea, I don't see yeah. I don't see what stops it's it. It's very hard to write without a no campaign. I mean, you, you may be able to bring this down, but it would take at least uh, probably equal funding, you know, three and a half million. Um 
It's interesting because there are cases, you know, this isn't going to stop every case and every case is different and every case you try and figure out, could you have done something different? But we do have a couple examples, you know, the Cafe Racer shooting, which was a couple years ago, one of the worst in Seattle, five people killed that day. You know, the family said we had tried something. We saw the signs. We knew and we knew he had guns, our son, and, and there was no sort of mechanism in the Jewish Federation shooting. And one of the victims there is part of this campaign. She mentioned at Civic Cocktail, we were both at, that the family of that shooter was also concerned and worried and saw the signs. So it's not going to, you know, fix every problem, but there are there are little pieces that the pros point to that, that we could sort of shore up that system maybe. And so I also, I think we have to look back two years ago to Initiative 594, the background vote. And boy, did that do well in Washington State, three to two or 60 percent favorable. And that that's an amazing initiative number, if you think about it. And at that point, uh, there really was opposition. Remember, they had an alternative measure on the ballot trying to, I don't know, confuse people or trying to make this a murkier argument. This one seems to me, I could be wrong, but it seems like a much cleaner shot. Yeah, and it's and it's narrower. And as you say, there's no opposition. There's It's sort of a there's one-man a show. There's kind of, of an admirable guy that yeah. I've interviewed, you've interviewed. He yes. from, comes from the mental health community, worries about the stigmatization of this, worries that maybe this could be abused. Is there enough due process? Maybe you have a grudge against the family member, and that's why you turn him in. That was an interesting argument, didn't you? Yeah, that, that yeah. it could be misused about another topic. Right. I just have a grudge against you, Joni, yeah, and just, I don't yeah, think you're dangerous, don't but I'm going to go say you are right. and you know, have your gun taken right. away just to kind of get back at you for some argument we have. So it, it could be abused. They they claim there are safeguards in there for that. But what is notable is that the NRA, the Second Amendment folks, which we have several leaders here in the region, yeah. are not taking this up. And you know, I don't think they love it, but I also think that you know they say that the problem is not guns, it's people. So they, they do want and have supported, you know, reforms that have to do with mental health and trying to sort of get people um, help and get, get the guns away from the bad guys. And, and this is sort of a way to do that. I don't think they probably love it, but that they're not taking up the fight suggests that, that there's something about this that they think is all right. Uh, the early polling on this, at least the polling I've seen, was very favorable on this. Not quite as high as the background check, I should point out, but but high enough to probably pass. Well, CR, that was big fun, and we're going to do it again next week. I'm Joni Balter. Thank you all for listening. And for more election stories, please visit us at kcts9.org. Thanks. Take care. To hear more podcasts from KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.